The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's word, we always need to Make sure we're spiritually prepared through the use of 1 John 1, 9, if necessary. Confession means to simply admit or acknowledge our sins to God. We always need to remember that God's fully aware of all of our sins from eternity past. They may surprise and shock us. We may be uh, overwhelmed by guilt or shame or embarrassment, but that doesn't uh, cut any ice with God in terms of trying to convince Him to forgive us. Our works, our feelings, our emotions have nothing to do with our forgiveness. It is solely and exclusively based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Therefore, it's a simple grace recovery procedure. We admit our sins. God instantly forgives and forgets our sins, separates us as far from them as the East is from the West, and then we are restored to fellowship, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so we can resume our spiritual advance. Let's bow our heads together and begin in prayer. Father, we do thank you that because of your grace and goodness, we have the opportunity, the freedom in this country to gather together as a body of believers and to openly and honestly study your word. Father, we thank you for the blessings that you have given this nation as a result of our foundation in Bible doctrine and in the divine institutions. Father, we pray that as we uh, go forth and with this coming election that... Uh, we will just relax and trust you, recognizing that it is very likely that we are in a period of divine discipline on this nation because of failure in so many categories, and that we need not put our faith and hope in political change, political parties, political promises or policies, but in your grace and your sufficiency. So, Father, now as we continue to study and relate so many important principles from judges to current events and current situations and living in the midst of a hostile culture, we pray that we might be able to fully comprehend and understand how these things impact each one of us in the realm of our own thinking, that we may be able to renovate our thinking, 
under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, that we might be transformed more and more into your image. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles again to Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3, and we continue our study of what takes place in the nation Israel during this time of spiritual apostasy and political decline and military collapse. We are in the first of several cycles. Uh, In terms of large cycles, there are six major cycles of disobedience, discipline, and deliverance in the book of Judges. And we are looking at the very first one, which has to do with the deliverance from the judge. The Hebrew term shafat refers to a deliverer, not a judge in the sense of a magistrate in the judicial system, such as we uh, are familiar with in our system, but it has to do with someone who is a deliverer, a leader. And in some cases, that took the took the uh, course of action of rendering some judgments judicially, as in the case of... Uh, of uh, Deborah, which we will cover in Judges 5, but it often took the course of military leadership, recognizing the principle that freedom comes through military victory. We have seen that uh, in our study that one of the reasons they are going through this is because the nation failed to carry out God's mandate to completely annihilate the Canaanite population in the land. They reached a point where they were indeed just living, compromising, assimilating with them to the point that they were intermarrying. And that signifies the fact that they had become so comfortable with the uh, pagan way of thinking, the pagan way of life, the human viewpoint thinking of the culture surrounding them. They, they were no longer concerned with the spiritual priorities as laid out by the Mosaic Covenant, as laid out by God. Doctrine was no longer number one in their life. And they began to just easily slip into the way of thinking of the people that surrounded them. Judges 3, 5, and 6 tells us that the sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And we've seen that this is a standard listing of the various ethnic groups that was sort of a melting pot in the, in the land uh, known as uh, Canaan at that time and was to promise to Israel and that they f- really formed one cultural group. They uh, perhaps lived in different areas, Canaanites more towards the south and in more of the lowlands, Hittites lived more to the north, Perizzites lived in the uh, highlands in certain villages and Jebusites lived in Jerusalem. Verse 6, they took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons. So the national distinction of Israel as a unique uh, entity unto God, a unique ethnic entity unto God, is starting to break down through intermarriage with the pagans. And then that leads to religious apostasy, and they served their gods. And the, what we see is that this begins a cycle of deterioration of positive volition throughout this period of the judges. And the first cycle deals with deliverance by Othniel. And he is the first of the judges. And when we study Othniel, we need to remember that that Scripture never says anything negative about Othniel. And that means that he is set up for us as sort of a standard. 
by which to evaluate all of the subsequent judges. He and his wife, Aksa, are a model of the lifestyle of the, what the believers should be in that generation and in that culture. And as we go through the book of Judges, we will see a steady and consistent decline from one age or one judgeship to the next. The next is Ehud. Ehud certainly has certain problems in the way he conducts his lifestyle, showing that he has adopted pagan methodology and the methodology of the Canaanites around him in order to accomplish his task. Sort of the end justifies the means approach, which is not uncommon in our own generation. Then we come to Deborah. And this is the, the second time we see the emphasis on a woman in the book of Judges. The first is, of course, Othniel's wife, Oxa, who demonstrates uh, all of the proper attitudes of respect and deference and authority to her father and to her husband. And she demonstrates that she understands the proper uh, role and uh, position of a wife in a marriage situation under the Mosaic Law, and as God has ordained the distinct roles of husband and wife. And uh, she is a model. She and Othniel become a model of the uh, male-female relationships in society. And what happens by the time we get to Deborah in the third cycle, she goes to Barak, Barak as it's pronounced in Hebrew, she goes to Barak and she says, you know, you are appointed by God to be the general, the commander-in-chief, and lead the armies against the enemies of Israel. And he says, well, I'll go if you go. And we see the feminization of the male. And this is typical in pagan societies is the breakdown of male-female distinctions and role distinctions. And this is because once they begin to break down, marriage begins to break down, Family begins to break down and is a direct assault through human viewpoint thinking on the stability of a nation and the divine institutions. So you see that the male becomes more feminized and the female, in order to pick up the slack, has to take on masculine roles in order to bring uh, deliverance to the nation. This is not something positive. I'm telling you, you will always run into somebody who doesn't have a clue what the Bible is about, doesn't have a clue about Old Testament theology, and as soon as you bring up the issue from the New Testament that women are not supposed to be pastor teachers, and the women do not have the gift of pastor teacher, and not supposed to be leaders in the local church, they'll, you'll always hear somebody say, well, what about Deborah in the Old Testament? And Deborah was never a pastor. Deborah never handled the Word of God. She was never placed in that sort of authoritative role. She doesn't serve as a prophet or a priest. She is simply a civil leader that functions because the male leadership has broken down and is in apostasy and in failure. That leads to Gideon. Gideon is really sort of the center point of the book. Uh, up to that point, the judges are more positive than they are negative. From, that, from Gideon on, they're, they're more, uh, more negative than they are positive. Gideon uh, is just a, uh, afraid to trust God, afraid to uh, follow God's will. But he finally does trust God. He's followed by Jephthah, who is so, his thinking is so muddled with human viewpoint type of thinking about God that despite the fact that he is empowered by the Holy Spirit to bring the nation to, to a military victory, he, after God promises him that, Jephthah comes along and says, Well, Lord, you give me victory, I'll sacrifice whatever comes out of the door of my house first to greet me when I return. 
then that's typical of the kind of bargaining that goes on in any kind of pagan approach to religion. You see it today in the health and wealth gospel that is promoted in, in many um, uh, denominations that, God, if I give you ten bucks, you'll return it a hundredfold, the scripture says. So they, the pastors uh, try to fleece the sheep by telling them that if you give whatever you give to the church, God will restore it to you tenfold. So that's the best investment procedure you can ever get in. So uh, everybody give around $10,000 and God will restore it to you a hundredfold and so you'll have a million dollars. And it's just bargaining with God. If you know, God, if I'll do this if you do that. And that has nothing to do with prayer or spiritual life. And Jephthah shows the extreme. And when he returned home, his daughter joyfully ran out of the house to greet him. And he was therefore, by virtue of his oath, and he followed through with his oath, and he offered her as a burnt offering. The Hebrew word is ola, always means a burnt offering in Scripture. And he offers up as a burnt offering, a sacrifice to God, which shows how pagan the leadership has become because of their adoption of human viewpoint uh, thinking. And then, of course, the last judge is Samson, who is caught up in all sorts of, of uh, sexual sin and He's, uh, he can't control his own passions, his own sin nature, shows very little spiritual interest, and yet he still, at one point in time, does trust God. Now, the thing that we learn from this of a positive view is that all of these judges are mentioned in Hebrews 11 as heroes of faith. What that tells us is that God, God understands our weaknesses so much that when we just show a little bit of faith and trust God at that critical moment, then that has a tremendous impact in history and in the angelic conflict. So, too often we get the idea that, that well, God expects us to be per- perfect, and yet we look at the heroes that God mentions in the Scripture, and He paints them not only warts and all, but He shows how warty they really are. And uh, we're no better, and I've always found that a great sense of encouragement, that when I fail, that, uh, that I- I'm not the first person in the history of Christianity or or in the history of the human race, to fail in the spiritual life. Because we all still have a sin nature, and God is a God of grace who still deals with us in grace. So this is the outline of the book. Now, the next stage is given in uh, Judges 3.7. The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they forgot the Lord their God... And they served the Baals and the Asherahs. Now, what we see in this verse that is so important that I took a lot of time to dwell on is the concept of forgetting the Lord. See, we have to understand that in the uh, framework of the book of Judges, the argument is that as the nation became apostate, they basically abdicated their personal freedom. And they became more and more enslaved, not only to their own sin nature, but in divine discipline, God had to uh, bring them under the dominion of foreign powers and foreign armies. And what we see from this is that the political collapse and political failure and military defeat was not the result of a uh, poor military policy from the administration of Israel. Remember, the executive branch in Israel is God. It is Yahweh, the covenant God of the Mosaic Covenant. So it's not the fault of a poor military policy. It's not the fault of 
of a poor economic policy or the lack of an oil policy or all of these other things that we hear so much about in the news. That if we just fix this or fix that, that we will solve the problems. Those are symptoms. Those are merely symptoms of the real problem. And if we don't fix the real problem, then all of the other things, it doesn't matter how conservative, it doesn't matter how liberal, it doesn't matter how socialist or how uh, communist your policy is. If you don't have it right spiritually, you're going to fail always. And that's what this is pointing out, is that the underlying causative issue in history is not political philosophy, it is not economic theory, it is not military might. The underlying issue in history is always positive volition. And when a culture has negative volition, the consequences ultimately are national collapse and failure. And this is what is happening here is the mechanics are that they forget the Lord, and this means a lot more than simply a momentary lapse of memory. It's not just sort of a, uh, a passive neglect, a temporary amnesia, like forgetting where you put your car keys this morning, or, or maybe getting so busy one afternoon, you, you forget that you have to go to Bible class at night, and all of a sudden you wake up and you go, oh, I'll never make it tonight, I just got too busy. And that happens. This is not what happened in Israel. They didn't get up one morning and say, oops, I forgot to set the alarm. I don't have time to, uh, and not even think about it, just grab something to eat and run out the door and halfway to work say, oh, I forgot to have my morning devotions and prayer time. That's not what this is saying. This word is best understood when it's viewed in uh, conjunction with a similar verse in uh, Judges 2.11, which says that everything is the same, but the verb is different. And there it says that they forsook, they abandoned the God of the covenant. They uh, azab, there is the word in Hebrew, and it means to depart, to abandon, and to forsake. And that's how it's translated in the New American Standard in verse 12. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of Yahweh and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord. And... Uh, Judges chapter, in chapter 3, verse 7, it says the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God. So the term forgot and forsook are parallel, and that's what forgot means. The Hebrew is shakak, and it means to uh, set something aside, to render it to oblivion, to intentionally disregard something, to disdain it, and to reject it. It is a very strong meaning in this context. And it indicates that this is a volitional decision on the part of Israel. Now, what happens in this sort of context that we saw before is when you begin to forget God, what you have to do, either in an unsophisticated way or in a sophisticated manner, you have to rewrite history. You have to get away from history and you have to become the enemy of history and you have to change history into myth. Otherwise, you will be confronted by the historical reality of God's work in the past. It's been approximately 40 to 45 years since the uh, nation Israel crossed the River Jordan on dry land as God parted it as he had the Red Sea. It's been about 40, 45 years since they conquered Jericho, Ai, and all the various tribes uh, under Joshua. It's been 80 years since the Exodus, and what they have to do is, is forget that God worked in history. God always works in history. History is the arena of, of God's work. It's not subjective. It is not in the arena of emotions or impressions or intuitions. It is always in historically verifiable acts in history. 
And what happens is, to get away from this, man has to attack history. And this has happened under liberal theology since the mid-1700s, and it has been a concerted attack to try to discredit the historicity of Genesis 1 through 11 and the historicity of the Gospels. If you can pull that off, then Jesus is no longer a historically objective figure, that salvation is no longer based on a, on a, on a uh, judicial imputation of sin on Christ on the cross in 33 A.D., on a Wednesday afternoon when the Romans crucified him, but it is merely a matter of how it affects your life. It becomes a psychological factor rather than a real historical redemptive work in people's lives. And it comes about because we forget history. Now, one of the things that has happened in in the shift in history, and I quoted this last time as we looked at the doctrine of history, is a statement by... Fernand Braudel, who's a French historian. And he wrote, Men do not make history. Rather, it is history above all that makes men, notes the last phrase, and absolves them of blame. And this is where, this is one example of where modern history is going when you take your kids to school and they sit in the history classroom and, and their teachers teach social science. Those teachers went to college somewhere. And their college professors were influenced by their college professors. And they were influenced by men of stature like Braudel and others. And they are teaching from a view of history today that renders man volitionally uh, negligible. And once human volition and human personality is no longer the issue, but it's uh, the the causative issue or causative factor in history is is weather or geography or natural resources or some other non-human factor other than volition, then man is no longer responsible for his decisions and for what happens in history. So you don't even study personalities anymore. You no longer study the great uh, men of history. You no longer uh, study the great generals and the great military battles. You no longer cover the great uh, statesmen of history because they're, they're just blips on the radar screen. What really matters is structures that were going on at the time, the physical structures and other things like that, because man is really irrelevant. He's just another part of the, uh, of the machine, another element in the, another cog in the machine of nature, and so man is just a victim then of what goes on around him. He is no longer, volition no longer matters, and therefore spiritual decisions are no longer relevant to the course of a nation. So then, once we adopt that frame of reference in our society, and we come to a political year like this one in an election, nobody focuses on spiritual issues because that's been rendered irrelevant. That's merely something subjective. So in its place, then, you put something uh, within the realm of nature, and that is elevated to the position of, a, uh, of the absolute that, that is the causative factor in history. Once you remove the objective, and we have used the, um, this particular chart to demonstrate this, that the creator is above the line, and there is a creator-creature distinction according to the first chapter of Romans. And we have seen in our study of Romans chapter 1 that what happens in pagan cultures is that man rejects the creator and he suppresses the truth 
in unrighteousness. He knows that God exists, but he rejects that in negative volition. And so he substitutes the, creature, the worship of the creature for the worship of the Creator. This is in Romans 1, 18 through 21. That means that man, once he eliminates the top part of this chart, eliminates the Creator from the picture, all that is left is what is below the line. Human reason, human experience, or empirical investigative techniques, scientific data, his individual historical events, values, feelings, impressions, or intuitions. So therefore, meaning does not come from somewhere outside of that box. Meaning must come from something inside the box. And therefore, there is no, since there's no overriding principle by which to make a universal judgment, your decision or your impressions are no more or less valid than the other person's reason or use of scientific data. One culture's value system is no better nor worse than another culture's value system. And that is where we are today in what is called multiculturalism as a function of postmodern thought. And once you eliminate the top line, you get the creator-creature distinction violated where all you're left is that which is in the bottom, that, that box in the bottom there, that, that uh, you, you can only validate things by something in that box. Some people will validate it through scientific data, and therefore you have the rise of Darwinian evolution, and they're still, interp- they, by rejecting the Creator in any sort of universal criterion, all they're left with is data, but they have to generate the interpretation of that data from within their own frame of reference. And as a result of the rejection or, or a reaction to uh, the enlightenment and the rationalistic empirical approach to life in postmodernism, the emphasis is now on feelings, impressions, and intuitions. And I had the quote last time from an Oxford professor of history which exemplifies this. He says, To me, the test of a good history book is not so much whether the past is verifiably reconstructed. In other words, it, its accuracy is irrelevant. Facts then are unimportant for him. They're irrelevant. They're dull. And, of course, there's no such thing as absolute truth in his thinking. He goes on to say, It doesn't matter whether it's verifiably reconstructed and cogently expounded as whether it is convincingly imagined and vividly evoked. In other words, now the point is that what makes history important is how it makes me feel. And we see the same kind of thing going on in the church. It doesn't matter what the Word of God really says. It's not my job to come and sit and study the Word of God day in and day out and have my thinking changed and really force myself to think objectively about life in terms of God's values. But what's important is how I feel. The accuracy of what is taught is not important. It's whether I feel like I I had an encounter with God when I came to church this morning. And how many times I've heard that from people say, you know, Pastor, I felt like I, I met God this morning. Well, I, I, I'm sorry, but you should feel that way all the time. But it's not even feelings. It's, it's study of God's Word that matters, and you're using a false criterion. You're using nothing but subject, subjectivity to determine truth. So what we have seen in our study of, of history and these particular words in the text is that once a nation gets away from history and objective historical data, and they have shifted away from that, then they can forget God and rationalize God out of their thinking, and the result is that they go into uh, spiritual collapse in the nation. 
This, na- this is exactly what has happened in the nation Israel. In Judges 3.7, we realize that this generation has forgotten God because they are anti-history. It really wasn't God that brought us across the Jordan River. Maybe that really didn't even happen. That's just a legend. It really wasn't God that brought us out of Egypt. Even the Exodus generation, this shows you the tendency of the human, fallen human mind to rewrite history, is that within just a few weeks of the Exodus event, when the very people who saw God part the Red Sea were at Sinai and Moses is up on the mountain, they're building a, a calf idol to worship and they're attributing to that calf idol, that bull idol, which is a, a, an idol they brought, they, an idea they had that they brought with them from Egypt. They're already rewriting history. It wasn't this God, Yahweh, who parted the Red Sea. It was the golden calf that parted the Red Sea. You see, our tendency is always to get away from the objectivity of history because that con- always confronts us with the reality of a personal God who is righteous and just and has a standard that we should be, uh, that we should live up to. And what happens is that according to Romans chapter 1, as soon as we uh, are rejecting God and suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, then we are, uh, according to this same verse in verse, um, and at the end of verse 7, is that we exchange the worship of the uh, creature for the worship of the Creator, and we begin to worship idols. Now, they may, may be the concrete idols of the ancient world, or they may be more sophisticated idols of, uh, of our thinking as we have today. For example, in the New Testament, it emphasizes that greed or materialism lust is idolatry. You're worshiping money. That's why Scripture says that it is the love of money that is the root of all evil. Not money. But the love of money, materialism, lust, is the root of all evil, because, and that's a form of idolatry. You are looking to something in the realm of the creation, in this case money or what money can buy, to provide what only God can provide, which is stability, happiness, peace, and prosperity. Because prosperity is a matter of the soul. It is not a matter of, of uh, physical possessions or a bank account. So what happens in verse 7 is that the Israelites reject the Lord their God, and instead they serve, and the word here is avad, that we have studied so often recently. It's a term that not only means to worship, but also means to work or to serve. It indicates, in some cases, even slavery. And it indicates their obeisance to the idols of the Canaanites. And what happens, according to Romans chapter 6, is that once you uh, get into carnality, you are a slave to your sin nature. And when you are worshiping idols, in other words, whenever you are out of fellowship, whenever you are not living according to the standards of God's Word under the filling of God the Holy Spirit, you are a slave to the sin nature. Once you become a slave to the sin nature, then all other forms of slavery will sooner or later follow because you have already adopted the mental attitude and the way of thinking of a slave, and not the way of thinking of a free person. We'll look at that in detail in just a little bit. So they are basically enslaving themselves from a divine perspective to idol worship. Now I want you to notice something about this. It says that they serve the Baals and the Asherah. Now the Baals is a general term. In the Hebrew it's Baalim, or Baalim, that's really the correct Hebrew pronunciation. Most English speakers just pronounce it Baal. 
but it's the Baalim in Hebrew. That is, a, it's a plural word. And there, this was the second god in the pantheon of the Canaanites. The high god, comparable to Jupiter in Rome and Zeus in Greece, was the god El. That's a generic term for God. It's brought over and utilized in Hebrew. It's just a generic term for God, like our word God can refer to just about any kind of uh, a supernatural deity. El has a son by the name of Baal. Now, just as uh, Saturn or Uranus has a son named Jupiter or Zeus in the Roman, Greco-Roman system, uh, El has a god uh, son, Baal, and sooner or later, El disappears from real significance in the uh, mythical structure. Then there, Baal is a male god, and he is the storm god and the god of war. And his counterpart, who sometimes is said to be the wife of El, is Asherah. But in other literature, it, it, she becomes the counterpart of Baal. Now, this indicates the sexual nature of the, these uh, pagan religions and the way in which sex plays a role in their ultimate view of reality. In Christianity, there is no sexual distinction in the Godhead. God is not male or female. God is God. God created sex to be part of the created order for animals and for mankind, for, and for mankind to serve as, a, uh, as both pleasure and for uh, the uh, multiplication of the race and development of the race in, from, one, and, uh, from one generation to the next. But what happens in pagan religions is they always start breaking down sexual distinction. It shows, an, because the gods that they create are basically a reflection of their own thinking, and then it serves, once you create this mythology, then it serves as self-justification for your, and rationalization for further uh, perversion. So you have, as your ultimate reality, male-female distinctions in God, in the Godhead, and in all of your gods. And not only that, but there is rank immorality among the gods. In this case, uh, El it tends to be supplanted in many of the myths, and Baal takes uh, Asherah as his wife. She is also, in some things, his mother. And that indicates uh, incestuous perversion that then becomes justified by your religious system. You also see that, that in this whole scenario, that uh, the, by using this kind of uh, break uh, or this kind of system, you start breaking down the significance that God established for male-female roles in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Man was created... Uh, in order to serve God and in order to cultivate to guard and to uh, serve God in the garden, and the woman was created as his helper. She is not the one in authority. And what we see in the curse is the woman is going to have a tendency to want to usurp the authority of the male. But the scripture teaches that the male is the one who is responsible. And ladies, what's really tough is when that male is, in your opinion, failing. And then that's tough. And, you know, and it's not just you. Every one of us is under authority. Guys, we all work, work for some boss that, that 
we could do the job better, and the guy was a loser. But we have to submit. It's authority orientation. You have to submit an authority. Everybody's under authority, and the, the uh, degree to which the authority is able to fulfill their role is not the issue. The Bible never says, obey whatever the authority is when they're doing it the way you think they ought to be doing it. Because then you're setting yourself up as the absolute authority, and uh, God did not allow you to do that. God just says you have to have authority orientation, and so whether or not the authority is, is behaving the way you think they should or not, your responsibility is to obey and to submit to that authority. And once you start breaking down in this kind of a religious system here, your male-female distinctions, then it works itself out in culture in many different ways. Asherah has about 70 different children according to the, the mythology of the Canaanites. And she is often called the, uh, the mother of the gods. And she has uh, all of these god, these god children are produced from different fathers. So you see that the pattern set up by their religious system is going to be anti-marriage and anti-family. Now this is going to be very important when we come back to look at this uh, in a few minutes in terms of some analyses. That the very religious system that they have is anti-marriage and anti-family and Asherah was called the procreatress of the gods. And she is called also the procreatress of God the Son, who would be Baal, and she was considered the consort of El. So you see, all of this is really a satanic counterfeit to start to destroy and attack the true God of the Bible. Now, what happens today is that we see something very similar happening as a result of the feminist movement that really got going again back in the 60s. And you see this in relationship to language and especially the popularity of uh, the use of uh, gender-specific language or non-gender-specific language. And these new translations that are coming out today where they talk about God as a woman or they just uh, use a, uh, a, some sort of neutral term and, uh, to refer to God as the great person or the great one or some, some Bibles even go so far as to refer to God as a she and it's an attempt to completely restructure our culture's thinking in order to get us move us towards some sort of matriarchy. Now, one of the things that is interesting is uh, that underlying a lot of this feminist jargon is the idea that there ought to be uh, uh, that there's uh, some sort of matriarchal, ideal matriarchal society in history. And uh, this is promoted by a lot of feminists, and you'll hear it in college and university classrooms. And it's interesting that a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times book review, there's a book reviewed called The Myth of Matriarchal Prehistory, Why an Invented Past Won't Give Women a Future. And it is reviewed by uh, a woman by the name of Natalie Angier, and she is clearly admits that she's a feminist, but she says, look, we have to be honest, there's absolutely no historical information that there ever has been a matriarchal society that worked. You can't find evidence of any uh, prehistoric matriarchal society anywhere, and inventing it just doesn't help the cause. But see, that's modern, that, that's what I'm pointing out with modern history, is if uh, it, facts don't matter, just invent something to give yourself a rationale 
for your behavior. And yet, if you go out and poll a lot of people, they would think, that, oh yeah, there have been successful matriarchies in society. Never once has there been, according to her review, uh, a successful matriarchy anywhere at any time in history. It doesn't work. It doesn't work because women were not designed by God to be the leaders and to be the initiators in society. He did not create their soul to function in that way. And whenever a woman begins to function in that way, it causes a lot of soul damage. It damages uh, the marriage as well. When Same thing happens when men refuse to function as leaders and take initiative in the home. They become feminized. And the result is that when you get most families and most men and most women functioning that way in a culture, then the culture begins to uh, fragment from the inside. And so what, you, what happens in those pagan cultures is what happened in the ancient world. They start developing myths that will justify their perversion of the God-ordained roles. And that's exactly what we see happening today. And it's being taught to your children and they're being brainwashed with it in their social uh, science classes. So you need to be very much aware of that. Now, in the next verse what we see is that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the sons of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim for eight years. Now, one thing that's important to note here is a couple of key words. First of all, as we have seen, the anger of the Lord does not mean that God had an emotional reaction to Israel's disobedience. We have seen that this is a phrase that is uh, an anthropopathism. And an anthropopathism means that uh, this is a, the attribution to God of a human emotion in order to give us an analogical frame of reference for understanding the policy and the procedure of God. It's based on an analogy. And uh, some people will say, well, uh, how can you say that? Well, one reason we can say that is, is the Hebrew that is used here isn't even a literal phrase like anger. It's a, also an anthropomorphism, which is, uh, has to do with attributing human form to God. Remember, God is a spirit. He does not have uh, legs or arms or eyes or nose. But he, we don't know what God looks like because we know that no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Lord Jesus Christ is the one who revealed Him. And in the Hebrew, the phrase is Ahara, and it means, or yet yeah, it means, his nose burned. It is a Hebrew idiom for anger because when a man gets angry, when a human being gets angry, sometimes their face turns red or their nose turns red. And so that was their idiom for expressing anger. But this itself is an anthropomorphism, and God did not have, does not have a literal nose, and it doesn't turn red. So we know that, that since the, the idiom itself is an anthropomorphism and not even directly literal, it is also an anthropopathism, which indicates the uh, fact that God in His integrity is rejecting their behavior. His righteousness sets the standard of his integrity. His justice is the application of that standard. And when God's righteous standard is violated, then God's justice must condemn 
mankind for his disobedience. And this is a function of the justice of God because now God's, God's righteousness has been violated by Israel's apostasy and consistent disobedience. So his standard is laid out in the Mosaic Law that if they disobey and get into idolatry and engage in this behavior, then God will discipline them through national uh, collapse and bondage to foreign powers. So this is exactly what happens here, that, that God's justice and righteousness kicks into action, and so he must bring divine discipline against the apostate nation. So he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, the king of Mesopotamia. And the sons of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim for eight years. Now, the word for sold is the Hebrew word makar. Here it's the cow imperfect, and it means to sell into slavery. It is the same word that is used over and over again in the scriptures to indicate uh, the selling of someone into slavery. So this is a free people. Remember, we have said that at this time in human history, no culture existed that was more free than Israel. If you go down to Egypt, the Pharaoh is, the, is God. Literally, he is viewed as God, God incarnate. And everyone in Israel that's not part of the royal family is virtually a slave. And you have those that are formal slaves and those that weren't, but virtually everyone in Egypt was subservient to the Pharaoh. If you went to the northwest, you would go to the Assyria, the Mesopotamian cultures, and there the king was not viewed as a god, but he was the prophet. He was also the priest. He was the voice of God. He had that same level of authority. If you went north, northeast to Mesopotamia, but then if you went northwest, you'd go to Hitt, the Hittite Empire, and there you would have the same sort of thing. And the kind of authority that these leaders had in those ancient civilizations was much greater than even Ayatollah Khomeini or Joseph Stalin or a uh, Saddam Hussein would ever dream about having today. They had just absolute authority over everyone in their society and there was very little revolt against them because of the religious stature and the religious status that was attributed to them. So Israel doesn't have any of that. When any traveler would come to Israel, they would see that God was their king. There was no autocratic kingdom or empire. They did not have a heavy taxation upon them like these other countries had, and the people had real freedom. But what happened is when the people caved into spiritual freedom, God made them political and economic slaves of oppressors to indicate and to teach that no matter what happens in your spiritual, in your physical life, if you are not right spiritually with God, it doesn't matter. So they are sold into slavery, because, not because they had the, a, a bad military. That was just a symptom. Not because they had a bad economic policy. That was just a symptom. Not because of any other factor but their religious apostasy. And then it says that the sons of, he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, and the sons of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim for eight years. That means that they were in disobedience to him. I mean, they were in subservience to him. And it is the word avad, and in this context, it should be translated enslaved. They were enslaved to Kushan Rishathaim. Now, at this point, we need to stop and look at the doctrine of spiritual freedom and political freedom. First point, political freedom without spiritual freedom is a thousand times worse than spiritual freedom 
without political freedom. Let me say that again. Political freedom without spiritual freedom is a thousand times worse than spiritual freedom without political freedom. That means it doesn't matter how great the nation is, how wonderful the Constitution, how much freedom there is in a nation. If you do not have spiritual freedom, then you are in the worst system of slavery ever. That's what Jesus was indicating to uh, the Pharisees in John chapter 8 when He said that they were slaves, but if they would know the truth, the truth would make them free. Political freedom, therefore, without spiritual freedom, is really useless. It's a thousand times worse because the bondage, the domination of your sin nature is worse than any kind of physical, political, economic slavery you can ever imagine. That's the divine viewpoint framework for looking at freedom. Point number two, when we quit living in the light of spiritual freedom based on Bible doctrine... Our days of freedom are numbered. When we quit living in the light of spiritual freedom based on Bible doctrine, our days of freedom are numbered. And that means that once a nation goes into apostasy, unless there is a true repentance, which means a change of mind towards the gospel and positive volition towards Bible doctrine, it will not be long before that nation goes into economic and political slavery. And you see, this is the overall rationale for the entire book of Judges. You see, it culminates in the argument in First Kings chapter, I mean, First Samuel chapter eight, when God, when the people finally come to a point of saying, "We don't want God to be our king anymore. We want a king like everybody else. We want a health care policy like every other nation. We want socialism." like every other nation. We want to have uh, uh, unionized everything like every other nation. You know, that's, the same, that's just what we're doing today. We want to be like every other nation. We don't really want to have freedom anymore. We want to sell ourselves into some sort of economic and political bondage for the sake of security. And this is what happens in 1 Samuel 8. And they say, we don't want a king that's absentee, that's God. We want a physical king like everybody else. And God said, okay, this is what's going to happen. He's going to quadruple your taxes. He's going to put a heavy burden upon you in order to support his bureaucracy and to support his lifestyle. And as a result of increased taxation, you are going to lose freedom. And our founding fathers of this, this nation understood that. That's why they made such an issue about taxation without representation. The amount of money that the government takes out of your pocket in taxes, whether it's gas taxes, whether it's income taxes, no matter what it is, directly affects your degree of freedom. You see, what most people don't realize is you work between six and seven months a year. And 100% of what you make from January the 1st until somewhere between July 1st and August 1st goes directly to the government. For seven, six to seven months out of the year, you are a slave of the United States government. Not one penny you make during the first seven months of the year is yours. Now, it really is, but they're taking it from you. Now, just think what you could do if they only took 10 or 12 percent. Let's say just the amount of money you made in January to the middle of February was all that went in taxes. Just think how much more cash you would have. Just think what you could do with all that. That's freedom. 
You could invest it. You would have. A, you could provide a secure future for yourself. You could. You could build a business. You could do all kinds of things. That's why God points out that taxation is related to freedom, and it's and the underlying issue is a spiritual capacity for freedom. And if you're not living on the basis of doctrine, then you're destroying your capacity for freedom. And once you do that, you will abdicate personal responsibility, and you will give it to the government. So when we quit living in the light of spiritual freedom based on doctrine, our days of freedom are numbered. Point three, unbelievers and believers in carnality live in soul slavery, and soul slavery leads to economic, military, and political slavery. Unbelievers and believers in carnality live in soul slavery. That's Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, the, almost the entire chapter is talking about the fact that as a believer you have been freed from the dominion of sin, but every time you uh, give in to the sin nature, you are saying, okay, I'm going to put myself back in slavery to the sin nature. So unbelievers are born in soul slavery, and believers in carnality put themselves back in a status of slavery to the sin nature, and that eventually leads to economic, military, and political slavery. Point number four, when the majority of the people in a nation live in soul slavery, it will not be long before the nation lives in political slavery. And that's exactly what Israel experienced. When the majority of the people live in soul slavery, they no longer have capacity for freedom. They can no longer understand what the issues are. They are no longer willing to accept personal responsibility for their lives. And the more they live in soul slavery, the more they will expect someone else to take care of them. And the eventual result is that they will uh, end up giving more and more power to a central authority. You see, that's the argument of judges, is there's no central authority at the beginning of judges. And this whole period ends up in economic, military, and political disaster and collapse. And the people demand a king in 1 Samuel 8, and God gives them a king because the only thing is, because they've rejected doctrine, the only thing that's going to bring political stability is a strong central government. So there's a political thesis here, and that is the absence of doctrine leads to the necessity of strong central government. The less doctrine there is, the less capacity for freedom there is, the more you need to have a strong central authority in order to control things. Because once you get away from doctrine, people get away from accepting personal responsibility for their lives. And when people no longer have a capacity or understand the importance of personal responsibility for their decisions, then, then anarchy will result unless a strong government steps in. Point number five, if your spiritual life isn't built on biblical truth, on doctrine dominating the soul then it is absorbed in paganism. You see, there's only two options. According to James chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, you're either thinking in terms of worldliness, cosmic thinking, you're thinking like an unbeliever, which is demonic thought, or you're thinking according to God's thinking, according to doctrine. It's either human viewpoint or divine viewpoint. And when you're out of fellowship, even if it's similar to divine viewpoint, because it comes from the same nature, it's human good, and it's ultimately destructive. So if your spiritual life isn't built on biblical truth, where doctrine is dominating the soul under the filling of the Spirit, then it is absorbed in paganism. And if it is in paganism, you are already a slave mentally, and government policies, programs, and political parties can't ever free you or give you security. 
So when you go to the polls in November, don't think that's going to solve the problem. It might put a band-aid on things. It might not. If we're under divine judgment, then whatever you do won't matter. And always remember that leaders reflect the core values of a nation, and we usually get exactly what we deserve. And if we are under divine judgment, then it doesn't matter how we vote, because the leaders we put into place are so corrupt, they are... uh, their, their mentality is the mentality of slaves themselves because they're in carnality. And so they will vote what policies and plans that are consistent with their slave mentality. And the culture just goes into further and further decline. Point number seven, when the remnant of believers in a nation is so reduced that their invisible spiritual impact is neg- negligible, then that nation goes out under divine discipline. That nation will collapse internally and they will usually get overrun militarily or they will have to throw out whatever government they had that gave them freedom and substitute for it a government of tyranny, a strong government. Now, when we come to this particular passage, we have a... uh, Oh, one thing I want to do before we go any further. I want to give you a little framework for understanding how to evaluate politicians and how to vote from a biblical perspective. It's not a matter of political party or political theory. It's a matter of biblical truth. And what you have to do is pick somebody, whether it's local government or national government, whose policies and thinking most clearly aligns with, with a biblical reality. The first divine institution is human responsibility. If we throw out human responsibility and we go along with all kinds of patterns of uh, uh, irresponsibility and victimology and everything else, and it's not really their fault, it's society's fault or somebody else's fault, and we need to solve the structures of society and then people will straighten up, then you know that's, that's false because that's attacking divine institution number one. Second, divine institution is marriage, Genesis 2.18. If they have policies that attack marriage, such as uh, having a system of taxation where a married couple pays more in taxes, where, where two people married and working pay more in taxes than they would if they were single, then that is an attack on marriage because it is better to be unmarried than married. And I had an accountant friend of mine tell me many years ago how surprised I would be if I knew how many people in uh, churches who were sound Christians who were not legally married because they had gotten divorced. He told me that there used to be a deal out of New York that would take you out into, into international waters every December 31st. And on December 31st, everyone would get divorced at one minute to midnight because that affects their tax status for the previous year. And then at one minute after midnight, they would have a mass marriage and everybody would get married again. And, and, you know, thousands of people did this every year for tax purposes. And there's tens of thousands of Christians in this country who, who aren't legally married because they would have to pay so much more in taxes than, than, uh, than if they were single. So they, are, they just tell everybody they're married. Perhaps they were legally married at one time and just quietly got a divorce and continue to live together so they don't have to pay thousands and thousands of dollars extra in taxes. See, that's a, that destroys the integrity of the family. Then the family is the third divine institution in Genesis 1.28. Marriage and family are the context in which all education and spiritual values are transferred from one generation to the next 
And when that's destroyed, there's no context for, for growth anymore or for stability in the nation. Then there's the establishment of human government in Genesis 9-6 with the institution of capital punishment. Now, we all know that there are many times in life that, that the government fails and government policies, though they are theoretically correct, they may be applied in an in, unjust or unjust or injudicial manner. That is true, I think, today. We need it, I think it's true that there needs to be a hard look at how uh, some things are going on in the judicial system in relation to capital punishment. That does not mean you do away with capital punishment. That means you fix the system. But God, but don't you think God in His omniscience knew in eternity past that men would screw it up? Nevertheless, He still gave man the responsibility. He didn't just suggest it, He authorized it and mandated it. So that means we have to do it and try to do it in as just a manner as possible. And then the fifth divine institution is that of national distinctions in Genesis 11, 7 through 9. This was some 200, 300 years after the flood, after the establishment of human government, when man tried to unite against God at the Tower of Babel, and so God created all of the different languages so that man would have to divide up into different groups. Now, once you get a, a politician or a political party or a nation that starts attacking these divine institutions, you know you're in trouble. We can't get into internationalism or globalism because that violates divine institution number five. When human government begins to break down and doesn't protect freedom anymore and forgets that their sole responsibility lies in two areas, and that is to protect from enemies in the country, which means provide a good police force, and to protect from enemies outside the nation, which is a strong military force, then uh, when they get into other things, then government's breaking down. When they institute policies and laws that, that uh, make it hard for families to survive and for, where both parents have to work 60 hours a week so they're never there to take care of the kids or to teach the kids, that's an attack on the family. Marriage then breaks down because of the pressure and you have a high divorce rate. And when they institute all of these policies and then try to absolve people of the responsibility for taking care of their own lives, then you have breakdown. That's biblical. You violate these institutions, your nation will eventually collapse and you will go into slavery. Now, we still haven't finished with our study of Othniel, so we will come back and wrap that up next Sunday, yeah, not next Sunday morning, but the following Sunday. In two weeks, we'll wrap it up. So, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this time together. We thank you for the way you have provided for us and that you have given us this information to help us to see and understand the trends of history and what's going on in our nation. Father, we do pray for our leaders that they would, they would uh, turn back to the truth of your word and that our nation would turn back and that there would be the pressure put on them that would uh, uh, generate a, a response to the gospel. But above all, Father, we pray as believers that we might not put our hope and faith in, in the temporal things of government or politicians, but that we would realize that our true freedom lies in the spiritual dimension and not on the basis of uh, what politicians promise or what political parties provide. But it is solely on the basis of our relationship with you. And if we have uh, spiritual freedom and we are living on the basis of that, that we are more free, and, and, and despite the fact that we live in an enslaved society, than anyone who is free without spiritual freedom. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning without faith, without hope, without eternal life, that you would make it clear to them that they can have a secure destiny in Jesus Christ.
They don't have to bargain with you. They don't have to reform their life first. All that is required is that they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and they will be saved. You have done all the work. All we have to do is accept it as a free gift. Father, we pray these things now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.